Is it working? That works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. My name is Sauki Aza. I'm from the minority part, which is an English part of Cameroon. And the government has been tracking down young uh, English Cameroonians and killing them just to destabilize uh, the English Cameroon part so they can really subdue them under the French Cameroon. So um, I've been arrested and tortured a couple of times. And they did whole sort of horrible thing to me and my family. And then I had to, to leave Cameroon. I left Cameroon, uh, that was, I remember that day at morning was October feed, October feed that night. Uh, I went to Nigeria where I, I took like seven days or so to get to Nigeria where I stayed in Nigeria for about three weeks, something so. I left Nigeria probably October ending, ending October. I flew to uh, Ecuador. So from Ecuador, I had to go through the had to go through the jungle, the part of the Amazon rainforest, to Panama. So from Panama, um, I went to uh, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and oh, right up to the border between Mexico and, Amer and America. That whole journey took like two months because I got in, um, I got in Mexico, in Tijuana, in Mexico. I got in kind of December, yeah, got the early December. So it probably took a month, probably a month and a half, yeah. It's not a good experience for, <laughs> it's not a good experience. Not even for people that just want to go do, um, just want to investigate or not even for journalists. It's not a good journey. In that jungle, you'll find all kinds of things. You find, um, you find thieves from Colombia that will rob you guys. You'll meet all kinds of snakes. Uh, like me, for one, I killed like three deadly snakes. Killed three deadly snakes. I was stung by a scorpion. I survived it. And we're drinking from, um, from one of the Amazon rain rivers. And so, yeah. We, I mean, we, we met dead bodies of uh, Cubans, guys from Cuba. We met some dead bodies from Cuban guys. And, I mean, we, we, we saw chimpanzees and we, we saw crocodiles and all of those things. So, yeah, that's the jungle. I think because I did it, it just kind of really helped me a lot. I mean, like to how to how to be patient and persevere. Because when we were in Colombia, they told us to go through all of that. It would just take us two days, and we bought food for two days, and it finally took us eight days. We ate food. Food got finished on the second day, and then. Um, Stay for six days, no food, no water. We're drinking from that uh, Amazon river, and I don't know, I just started eating white food. <laughs> and most of the, the the South American guys that were were in there with us, that were walking with us in that jungle, they kind of was, they were waiting to see if I was going to die from eating those fruit. 
and then because I survived, they just started eating it. <laughs> I'm a Christian and I believe that God is the one that has helped me and at those times when I was stung by a scorpion and everybody thought I was going to die they left me I stayed back and I prayed I was praying and I got serious energy just came upon me I believe God did that and I have to always look back in days like that so to be able to appreciate God for what he did This is Here Aya Presente, a podcast about immigration and Colorado. Are you a Christian? Uh, I grew up Christian, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Most Americans grew up Christians, then I'm not being Christians anymore. This is tape of our particularly flustered co-producer Lizette Zamora being asked if she's a Christian. I was I'm, I worked I studied politics and I just something that honestly not many Americans would ask casually. You know, worked in politics and government, and I think it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. But the man asking her that question is Selkie, a Cameroonian immigrant that fled to America from persecution in his homeland, a man who credits God with his very survival. Like just the concept of church. Mm-hmm. So I decided to just focus on it spiritually, focus on my faith. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just think that um, a lot of people had um, a lot of bad experiences in America when it comes to church. So I've talked to a lot of atheists here in America. Their problem is they grew up from the church. Yeah. They watch people, the way people in the church behave and how People are hypocritical and just kind of like, I don't want to go to church. I don't believe God even exists. But um, I think that it is more between a relationship between you and God or between me and God. So the church is just a fellowship. So you don't depend on the church for your faith. But you depend on God for your faith. That's me, yeah. So you may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than usual. That's because this story is full of nuance, and we wanted to dive deep and do the topic justice. So let's roll the tape. I was in Tijuana for like um, one month, two weeks. I was there for one month, two weeks. yeah, because I got in the I got into America early January. So when I got there, we had to go take numbers. Like we would go there, pick numbers. They would give us numbers. So every morning we go there at the at the border where um, the Mexican immigration they had a place there at the border. So we go there every morning. They call the numbers. Every morning they call the number, so as the number was, we're getting closer, so we're preparing to go in. 
the day they got to my number, I got in uh, in San Isidro. I think that's in California, right? Yeah. And I was so happy knowing that I was, I was, I mean, like I was kind of getting to the land where they could, they could help me from what I was running from. Uh, but I was surprised I was kept in a underground, in an underground detention center for eight days. You don't know morning, you don't know afternoon, you don't know night. No time, like it's underground. But it's a place where they keep like, we're kind of like 12 of us in a very small room. Like we will sleep, we're sleeping like sardines, like we just lay, lay like, like sardine like fish. That's how we'll sleep, so. And we'll sleep on the bare floors, probably. I was there for eight days. So for those eight days, I developed anxiety, high blood pressure, depression, everything fell on me. I couldn't sleep. I was on medication for the whole eight days I was in there. You can stay where you don't know time. You don't know if today is one day, or probably it's when the officers pass by, you ask them what, what time is it? He said, this is night. Don't tell this is night. It's time for you guys to sleep. This is night. And then sometimes they just wake you. They say, this is morning. You don't know any time. After eight days, um, they had to transfer us to the detention centers where we were supposed to go to. Uh, um, that morning, I remember that morning, they just came, call us, we went, and then the, they were chaining, they chained us like, like hardened criminals. I've never been in chains before. And I regretted my whole life ever coming here in America. I mean, like, I regretted. I probably would have stayed in Nigeria or somewhere else. So my whole life was crumbling when um, they had to chain us the way they did. They took us to these buses. They drove us from um, California to Arizona. So from Arizona, that is where they choose uh, the various detention centers where they send people there uh, in the various states. So they just came that evening. There were some other guys there in Arizona. So they just put us in one hall and then processed some papers and then they brought out some other guys added with us. And then that's how I end up uh, finding myself in the, at the Aurora Detention Eye Center. Early on, when I was onboarding, um, I was required to um, just watch court proceedings at the GEO facility. This is Shailene Morales, an attorney with the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network, or REMAIN. So for those who don't know, the GEO facility is near Peoria um, in Aurora. It's close to one of the university hospitals, um, and people don't actually recognize that it's there. She's describing the facility that they ultimately ended up keeping Selkie at, along with many, many others. 
um, because it's, you know, a, it looks like a normal building. So uh, I drive up to it. I'm parking. I walk in. Um, there's a security officer at the front. Everyone that needs to enter the facility has to go through that security officer. Um, on one side, there's the court window where you can file things. And then on the other side is the ICE office. So you walk into the security. You have to wait for the geo guards to allow you in. There are multiple different doors that you have to go through. And usually they gather us up, all like sardines, to get, you know, to walk us through these um these very heavy prison-like doors. Um, so we walk in, go into court. There are individuals who are waiting for their hearing in a very tiny um, hallway. Um, they're all waiting there. There's many people who speak third languages, uh, so that means right, not English or Spanish, who have zero idea where they're supposed to be. You have geo guards who are raising their voice as if raising your voice will help someone who doesn't speak English understand, right? Um, and so individuals who are gonna view court go into the courtroom first. Um, court is very gray. It's not a nice place. It's not a place that anyone would want to be. Um, so I'm sitting in the back of the courtroom just watching the proceedings go on. Attorneys normally go first. Um, and then pro se individuals, so individuals who are not represented by attorneys, um, go at the end. Um, usually the judge um, asks people, right, um, do you have a fear of return? Do you have family here in the United States? How long have you been here? Because while judges uh, are not able to give legal advice to folks who are not represented, they still assist them in determining what types of applications they could apply for um, generally right they don't give they don't give the individual like a green light saying you will win this case they just say do you have a fear of return or how long have you been here you can apply for uh, asylum or cancellation of removal um, so there is an individual uh, who was sitting in the courtroom who was getting all of this information from the judge um, and at the end, they were like, Your Honor, I don't understand what you, why I'm here. I don't understand why you're asking me if I have a fear of return. Obviously, that's why I'm here. Like, they, you know, they did not understand why they were incarcerated and in proceedings at that point. And I think that was super jarring because you would hope that people know what is going on even with the little information that they're given by the judge, but they don't because everything is coming at them. All of this information, there's multiple different people talking to them at all times. It's very complicated. So I think that was the realization for me that um, not everyone has the information that I do. And so when I'm talking to clients, I need to make sure that they understand and not like put on my attorney hat and give them weird legalese and like actually explaining it to people as um, as as simple as possible, but also giving them all the information that they need so that they can proceed um, and, you know, make the decision um, on their own with all the knowledge. 
I was there for eight months. And I mean, nobody should go through a thing like that. No immigrant, I don't think that uh, immigrants are supposed to go through things like that. I think it's, um, they said it's the process, like they keep you there so as to process to, 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 for you to face the judge. And, but I think it's pretty hard for people to bury it. So because right now I am still, um, I, I went to the hospital last week, like my high blood pressure is still, this is struggling to manage my high blood pressure, which, which is something I never had before. I never had anxiety before, but I developed all of those things in there, which is really, really affecting my health right now. I was there for eight months. I went for interview. I went for interview. Um, after four months, which is something I was supposed, I mean, like the normal procedure, like when you get in here, you know, as you're supposed to go for interview between the first, um, between the first three to three weeks to one month, you're supposed to go to, for interview. But I stayed for four months. Can you imagine, like, staying for four months? Uh, yeah, it was so hard. It was really, really, really hard for me. I couldn't talk to my family back home to know what actually how they were doing because my wife, I fled with my wife. So I fled leaving my wife, uh, sending her to her mom's village. And so I was still talking with them up to when I got into the detention center. I don't know actually where um, they were at the moment. My kids, um, I mean, because she was so much in, she was in trauma too based on what the military did to, uh, did to us. So, I mean, it was so hard for me trying to know how they were feeling. I left when my daughter was just three months old. And yeah, running away and going through all that I was going through, my wife and the, and the, and the kids. My son was kind of like four years. I mean, it was really hard for me. I couldn't get to them. Yeah, because it was so expensive to call back. I had no money, nothing, so. Yeah, calling from the yeah calling uh, in the detention center is really really expensive. Things probably yeah it's expensive. Uh, like I didn't have money. <laughs> yeah. And when you don't have enough money to call your family in detention, you also probably don't have enough saved for legal representation, and that's a problem, as Carly Howenstein from Remain explains. People in immigration proceedings, while they technically have the right to an attorney, the government does not provide counsel. And I think that's something that's really important to highlight. Um, and what this means is that if a person cannot afford pri a private attorney or cannot attain pro bono counsel through an organization like the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network, then they're forced to represent themselves in court in front of a judge and against a government attorney who is there actively trying to deport them. So because of how difficult it is to obtain representation, the vast majority of people in immigration proceedings do not have an attorney. Actually, only about 30% of people nationwide have an attorney representing them in detained proceedings. Uh, this is really significant because immigrants who are represented are three and a half times more likely to be released from immigration detention on bond and up to 10 times more likely to establish a right to remain in the United States. So having that representation um, really does make a difference. 
Um, also, over the past few years, arrests and detention rates have soared. Families have been systematically separated. Immigrants have been stripped of rights, and this has made them more vulnerable to deportation. Deportation can result in physical exile, can result in family separation, uh, loss of employment, and in some cases, violence or death if they're returned to their home country. Um, so legal representation in these cases can oftentimes be the deciding factor in large part due to the just knowledge, like we've talked about, of navigating these systems. Uh, the system is so complicated. It's set up for people to fail. And while attorneys do a lot, um, I think that one of one aspect that's most valuable to their work is just being able to provide advocacy and support and assistance um, to navigating the system so that people don't have to face everything so alone. So let's recap. Selkie is imprisoned in the Aurora Geo Detention Center with no money, no outside contact, and no legal support. The odds are very well stacked against him in just about every way, but this is where the plot shifts a bit. Yeah, so when I got in the detention center, I, I, I was just thinking things would be fast and then probably I get out of there. So when after that four months, no interview yet. I I was really depressed. And then one day uh, they brought a paper and like, oh yeah, there is an organization that comes to visit people in the called Casa de Paz. And so they come to visit uh, immigrants, those who are in there who are detained in the, who are being detained in there. And they were like, would you like to put your name? Would you like someone to visit you? I mean, I needed someone to visit me. I, I needed it. One morning, on Sunday morning, they got me up from sleep. I'm like, yeah, prepare, prepare, you have a visitation. I'm like, wow. So I did, I prepared, went for the visit. I remember it was this young guy, his name is Seth. He's a very nice guy. And then we're just talking, I mean, I don't know, I was just, I was so frustrated. I think I was just pouring out my frustration <laughs> to him. I was like, I was just speaking to him, just pouring out my frustration. And then after we spoke with her, and I was so happy to know he's a Christian. He's a Christian too. And then we spoke, we spoke about the Bible, we spoke about God a little bit, and then I went back into, into my into the cell, so happy and so relieved. Yeah, remember I went back so relieved and I was hoping for that visitation again. I thought probably he would be the person to come and visit me again. And then, so the next time, I think it was the next week, they came, they said, okay, you have a visitation. This time around, it was, it was Greg. Uh, let's see. So This is Greg Mortimer. Uh, Greg Mortimer, I've been volunteering with Casa de Paz for um, just over five years. For those of us who don't speak Spanish, Casa de Paz means house of peace. And their mission is to, quote, offer peace in the midst of chaos. Considering Selkie's story thus far, it seemed peace was exactly what he needed. Their goal is to welcome guests who are released from the immigration detention center in Aurora and provide them with a safe temporary space to go so they can connect with their loved ones and make it to their final destination. 
And my friends and I started visiting with Selkie. We spoke and then I get to know he's a Christian and then we spoke. I asked him, can I pray for you? Can I pray for your family? I mean, I think that is, um, that was the pathway into his heart. I don't know how it's happened, but that's how it happened. The next, the next week, it came. There was a lot of uh, discussion about the scripture, about how they're doing, encouragement. So I don't know how I turned to be encouraging them. <laughs> I mean, the detention center was encouraging them. And then they went back to the coffee joint. And then Greg was like, Did, who spoke with Selkie? And then like, and they were like, so today is Sunday. We didn't go to church. We just had our sermon in the detention center with Selkie. Before you know it, people were, when they come for visitation, people were fighting to talk to me, like, do something like, Seki, uh, Greg, I want to talk to Selki, this one, I want to talk to Selki. So I end up talking to like three or four people in one visitation. So they have to divide it. But Greg will always take the bigger part. <laughs> yeah, so, and then after uh, some time, they were like, do you have a lawyer yet? Because at that time, I was my... My final court date was kind of approaching the like, I said, I tried a pro bono lawyer, I couldn't get any. And then Greg felt so bad, he was like, we, we can't leave somebody like you to go back in Cameroon. They were like, we can't afford you to go back. We cannot let this person get deported because for a lot of folks like this, deportation could mean a death sentence. And then we're like, we have to do something. And Greg was like, okay, we will, I'll try to talk to some friends and see if we can raise some money and get a lawyer for you. A lawyer that, if you'll recall, makes his chances at staying in the U.S. 10 times more likely. So Greg and his friends set up a GoFundMe in preparation for Selkie's court date. And it was a huge success. In there, I was getting support from everywhere. Like, she put money into my commissary. I could call my wife. It was, it was such a joy knowing these people. It was the best thing that happened to me when I was in there. But before one week, the money was up. <laughs> they raised the money in under a week. It's a testament to the power of Selkie's story, really. Now, August is rolling around, and Selkie's court date is coming up. I had to face the judge, and... When I explain my story to the judge... The story of navigating jungles with no food. The story of finding dead bodies and killing snakes and being stung by a scorpion. The story of unlikely survival fueled by an omnipresent God. Uh, I remember she spoke to me. She said, Seki, I'm so sorry that um, you've been through all of this in your country. Uh, I've never heard a story like this. Because I had, she had to go through my story, she felt like crying. And she was like, Seki, we welcome you in the United States of America. We love you, we want you here. Selki had won his asylum. I remember um, I had a lot of friends. That's where um, my friend Greg, Jason Kavstig, um, a whole lot of them, I think there were about six of them, at the back of the car. They were just all just crying. They were just crying like, 
is the overdose. So happy that I won my asylum. I, I don't know. Because uh, at one point I became so I became so tied to them like a family. We're just like a family. And I, mean, I felt I was just so blessed to know them. My understanding is that the United States invented immigration detention. And so, uh, in fact, the very first detention center that was made entirely for, specifically for immigrants, was at Ellis Island in the 1800s. And apparently it was widely known throughout Europe as the Isle of Tears because of the, of the poor treatment of immigrants there. And then to learn that, um, we've basically created, you know, this industry of continuing to imprison primarily black and brown people um, and the injustice around that uh, at various times I found myself uh, feeling extremely angry and and frustrated and wondering how to address that right and so for me it's always the question has been what's the next step because if you try to think about what's immigration reform so we can start treating immigrants humanely that just feels too big and broken and all of that so for me, the next step is, has always been, how do I spend time with these wonderful people who have come to our country? And how do I engage more people, um, as many people as possible, to, to join in in that work? I was talking with a man who had recently been released from detention, and he was showing me photos of his two young kids. I think they're about five and seven who he was about to see again for the first time in several months. And he was telling me about where he was from and their their trip, their travel to get to the United States. And we were looking at we were looking at a map. I remember this. We were looking at a map on the wall of the world and he was showing me like where they went, um, how they traveled to get to the United States. And part of that was traveling, you know, from the from south to north in Mexico. And he talked about riding La Bestia or the Beast, which is uh, what migrants call the train that runs from south to north. And many migrants will train hop, jump on this train and ride the train to try to get to the northern Mexico border or the southern border of the United States. He had run and jumped onto La Bestia with his seven-year-old on his back and his five-year-old strapped to his front and his wife next to him. And that's how he got on this train. And I looked at him, I was shocked, and I responded by saying, that's incredible, I could literally never do that. And he responded to me and said, well, I bet you could if you had to. We hear lots of, um, lots of stories from individuals we encounter, whether they be clients or not, um, that I would personally say, how, how does someone keep going, right? I could not do what, I cannot survive what they've gone through, um, but people are resilient. I think my biggest takeaway from doing this work is to question authority and question our country's systems. Um, as I've said before, I am a white U.S. citizen, and that has given me a lot of privilege in my life so far. 
and I grew up more or less trusting systems, the systems that were in place and kind of trusting that if people were detained or incarcerated, it was for a quote unquote good reason or that there at least was a reason. Um, but since learning more, especially about the immigration system and many other systems, uh, it has become very clear that these systems are built on racism and xenophobia and that no one, no human being should be treated the way that they are in immigration detention systems. And it's going to take exposure and advocacy and a whole lot of fight to create effective change. And the, that effective change is very desperately needed because, um, you know, the media talks about the deserving immigrant or who who should be here, who shouldn't be here. And that's just not the way to talk about, about immigration or about these systems. Um, human beings should not be incarcerated, especially with no reason. And that's something that we have to um, figure out. A special thanks to Casa de Paz. You can visit their website at casadepazcolorado.org. That is C-A-S-A-D-E-P-A-Z colorado.org. As well as the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network, or REMAIN. You can visit them at rmian.org. And a very special thank you to Selki Aza for telling his story. This has been Here, Aya. Presente, a podcast about immigration and Colorado. This episode was produced by myself, Carlos Jimenez, Gray Newman, Lucy Richardson, and Lisette Zamora Galarza. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Center for Immigration Policy and Research here at the University of Denver and the Center for Innovation in the Liberal and Creative Arts also here at DU.